Hello guys and welcome back to another installment of Galley Stories, Stories of the Bering Sea and Beyond. I am your host, Mark Kaler. And today guys, probably a pretty unique guest, uh, captain of the uh, Golden Dawn, Pollock fishing boat up in the Bering Sea, uh, Captain Gary Hansen. Gary, how are you today? I'm doing fine, Mark. How are you? I'm doing real good, real good. Uh, let's just start at the very beginning. I know you've been fishing since you were like 15, but where were you born at? How were you raised and what got you into the industry? Well, I was uh, born in 1955 in McMinnville, Oregon, and I got into the industry after strawberry berry picking, cherry picking, whatnot. And my dad, uh, he came home one day and said, hey, how would you guys like to go and uh, have a job fishing? Well, me and my brothers, there's three of us, my other brother, Eric, he was too young to do anything. We looked at Dad and said, well, sure, what is it? And he goes, well, how would you like to go fishing off the Oregon coast out of Pacific City? And I, we just kind of go, fishing? I mean, we love to go fishing. We bicycle up to places 10 miles just to go fishing for trout that are 8 inches long and go fishing out in the ocean? <laughs> Duh. So that's what we did. And um, went down to an A-frame out of Pacific City, and we started mm -hmm. our fishing career in 1970. I was 15. My brother was 13. Dick was, uh, let's see, he was 21, mm -hmm. so he was the captain of the boat. Dick, and, um, no, Dick who? Dick Hanson, my older brother. Okay, oh, uh, okay. Well, there were six, there's six of us kids in our family. There's four of us brothers, Dick, me, Brian, Eric, and then two sisters, Linda, Diane. There's six of us. My dad was a doctor, and um, so we, dad bought this A-frame. We started out salmon fishing out of Pacific City in 1970, three brothers on a 22-foot dory, and if you know what it's like to have three brothers in a confined space, it can be dangerous. And cha Yeah, challenging at the very Challenging. Brain. What were you fishing for? We are fishing for um, Coho and Chinook out of Pacific City. Mm -hmm. We'd uh, launch our dories off the beach, row through the surf, go on out there, and we'd put our fishing lines out there, and... Um, troll around all day long in hopes that we would uh, catch a bunch of silvers and bring them in at the end of the day. We come in and ride a wave in. And as soon as so it no motor, break, it was all rowboat kind no, of No, it was a motor, we okay. had a motor. But as soon as the, the wave would crash, we'd go over the top of that and full board to the beach. And as soon as the engine would go touching the sand, we'd turn it off, pull the engine and slide up the beach. So it was pretty uh, an adrenaline rush. So you're catching them one at a time? Like, like, like literally fishing for them. We were commercial fishing. We had two poles that would go out the side of the boat that were 22 feet long. We had some deep lines that would hold 10, 10 um, spreads apiece. So there'd be 10 on each deep, that's 20. We'd have eight on each tip, that's uh, another 16, a 20, 30, 36. Then we'd have a stern line that'd go way out behind them, 46, that was another 14 or 15. So there'd be like 50 hooks out there. Okay. Although, we didn't know what the heck we were doing, and we were running really short leaders, hardly any, um, with a snubber and flashers. We wouldn't catch any fish. We lost more gear than my dad could supply for us. <laughs> Plus, having three brothers on the boat, that was uh, very interesting because, um, did we always get along? No. I once got a gaff stuck in my back trying to hit my brother in the with the other end of the gaff because he wouldn't change hoochies and um, he had to pull it out of my back and 
That was another story. I don't even want to get into that one. But that was pretty funny. We like to hear that. <laughs> you like to hear that? Yeah, sure. Oh, my goodness. Or brothers fight. That's what they yeah, do. Yeah, well, yeah, well, see, when three of us brothers were on the boat, my oldest brother, Dick, was six, uh, he was, he's seven years older than me. He would um, crawl up in the bow of the boat and says, okay, you guys, you got the boat. I'm going to sleep some fish on. And Dick, he was bigger than us, and he could beat us up pretty good. So we just said, okay. So my little brother, Brian who was 13 and I was 15, we would uh, be back there trying to catch fish and Dick would be up there sleeping in the bow. Um, and of course, when he came, woke up and we didn't have any fish, well, that was another story. I don't even want to get into that one. <laughs> but anyway, we ended up starting catching fish. And um, that was a lot of fun. And then it eventually ended up that Dick purchased the boat from my father and the boat name was, it was a wooden dory, a Vixcraft, and it, the boat's name was a spoiler. And my dad went, and he, he thought that fishing was so great, he loved it. And uh, he went and had an Oretown dory made out of balsa wood core, and was fiberglass outer, and it had a 155 Mavic Ford two-stage jet unit. So Brian and I fished that together, and the boat name was called the Ambergris. Ambergris is a, is a, um, it's well puke that they make uh, perfume out of real expensive perfume in um, France. They find that on a beach somewhere sometimes, right? Yeah, big old gray and... clumps. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's very valuable. Stuff. Very, very valuable. And my mom, my mom, she goes, "Well, there, there goes my. How do you like your diamond-studded steering wheel?" And we were fishing ambergris. So Brian and I went. We fished that dory, and um, we had a really good time. Although we still didn't know what the heck we were doing, and. Uh, my dad told me to go, my brother and I, to go uh, meet these two guys there and learn how to fish from them. And they just happened to be a couple derelicts that we didn't really know. We knew them. And uh, we learned everything from them, from good things to bad things. And uh, we ended up being very good salmon fishermen in the end. And we fished from 1970. And Brian, Brian and I, we got our own boats uh, probably in 1973. I graduated from high school in 73. And uh, that's what... Dad got those boats for us to put ourselves through college. And so the money we made during the summer catching fish paid our college education. Did, so what brought your dad to decide to do this, though? Because you guys were n nothing to do with fishing at all. And he's like, just one day, hey, I bought some boat, a boat, and you guys want to go fishing? No, actually, he, he, was, he wanted to be down at the beach because he loved the beach out of Pacific City, and he found a, an old A-frame. And he ended up... Um, buying this A-frame down at the end of the spit, and it came with a dory, and the dory was named Spoiler. And that's when he asked us if we would like a different job other than picking um, strawberries. Uh, beans and berries and strawberries and, and um, cherries, whatever. And uh, so we decided, yeah, we, we'd like to do that. So it came with a dory, and that's how we started in the fishing industry in 1970. So, so after high school, you had your own boat at this point? Uh... I graduated from high school in 73, and I think in 74, I bought my own boat, and it was called the Wonder. And I always wondered where I was or where I was going. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, that kind of followed me out through life, because once I, uh, once I went, uh, got the dory, and I graduated from college, and um, I graduated with a, a double degree in microbiology medical technology from Oregon State University. There were no jobs available. So what the next 
best thing for me to do is go back to do what I knew best, and that was fishing. And um, I started fishing, and the doors out of Alsea and out of Newport, and wasn't making any money. And and uh, so I went down to the docks there one day, and I asked some some fishermen that were fishing in these bigger boats, "What's the most nastiest job you can take that nobody likes?" And they said, "Well, don't go soul fishing." Well, that was for me. And that's how I started my, my professional fishing career in 1979. And um, I fished on the boat called the Fargo. There's actually books written about that boat because uh, once it was sold to other people and after I got off that boat, two individuals, uh, it's called the, the book's called the Orion, if you ever want to read it. And um, these guys got wrapped up in the back net reel. The guy ended up uh, going out with uh, only himself, the captain, and one crew member. And um, the one crew member got wrapped up in the net reel because they have a dead man valve. And you have to shut it off to stop everything. These days, you have spring-loaded valves, and when you let go of them, everything stops. But back in those days, there was either on, off, and that was it. So the one guy got wrapped up in the net reel. The captain ran back there to help him out. He ended up getting stuck and got wrapped up in the net reel. When the net's coming in? As the net's coming in. And it got, um, the one crew member, he perished. He kind of got crushed. The other captain, he got his arms broken and everything like that. And then it got jammed, jammed and it just stalled out. And they were headed west for some reason into the swell. And um, the Coast Guard found him two days later after it ran out of fuel. And they saved the one guy, and he's still alive, and that's where he wrote the book called The Orion. So if you really want an interesting story about the Fargo, it's called The Orion. That's a terrible story. I mean, oh, can I you know. imagine two days being alive, trapped in, in the net? It was cold, too. It was, yeah. it was pretty amazing. They went through a storm. So, but, but that's the boat I was on called the Fargo, and it eventually ended up sinking between um, Cape Lookout and Cascade Head. But that was my first experience going out in a boat. What was your job on the boat? I was a deckhand. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, um, I got off that boat because the captain kind of didn't pay the wages like he said he was going to do. And they heard about my experience of identifying fish, sole, etc. And I got on the boat called the Queen Victoria. And it was uh, the largest boat out of Newport at the time. It was a Gulf shrimper uh, turned dragger owned by Percy Hadley. And um, I got on that in 1979. And I guess through the time that I worked for him, starting off as a deckhand, and I went to a net mender, I learned how to do nets and then engineering. And by 1981, um, fall of 1981, he turned the boat over to me as the captain. And um, the crew that was on there prior to that, that I had worked with and did everything with there, they ended up being my crew. So, this is 81, right? 82? Yeah, 1981. So, you're probably 28, 20, maybe 30 at the time? Um, I was married. So, let's see. Yeah, I was 28 at the time. 27. My math's working. Okay. Yeah, your math's working. Uh, so, uh, the first time you got the keys, were you nervous? Were you... Oh, I was excited. And uh, because... The owner of the boat previously, he kind of slowly let me take the wheel here and there and then set the gear and and um, I ended up, I could I could catch a fish. And um, that was exciting to me because it was trying to figure out a puzzle. 
Uh, so he, he worked you into it. Yeah, he, he worked me into it. But it's like flying an airplane underwater. And I did bottom gear, roller gear, in the rocks and everything off the Oregon coast, heck of the banks, Stonewall banks. And that's where I cut my teeth. And um, I did pretty good for that. And, and it turned out to be uh, something that I really liked to do. And I didn't want to go back to my microbiology or med tech. And, and that was my career ever since. How long you spent on that boat? Oh, I ended up being a partner in that boat. I ended up owning up 25% of that boat throughout the years. I was there 13 years, and and um, and I ended up going up to the Bering Sea and fishing for the Koreans, the Shinano, on Gilho, on Jinho, on Ilho. And um, we did quite good during, um, started off doing Yellowfin Soul and going into Pollock and whatnot, and we had... Uh, kind of discrepancy about working on the boat and since I was doing everything I, d I would, have, would have liked to have had a little bit of a raise and it didn't work out and a gentleman up there on the Nordic Fury asked me to come and help work with him so I ended up leaving the vessel selling your portion of it selling my well I ended up not selling it there was a contract written and that if um poor poor offer was given that uh the opposing partner could buy it for that. So I was offered 25 cents on the dollar, so I ended up purchasing the boat. And um, that lasted for a few years, and I and we ended up selling it in 1991. And um, prior to that there, I worked on the Nordic Fury for a year, and then I got on the Neocani. Um, when what are these boats catching, the Nordic Fury? They're, they're catching Pollock in the Pollock. Bering Sea. Okay. Yeah, and um, then I went over there, and I worked for Supreme Alaska Seafood. The first one I worked for was the Ocean Phoenix. Offshore. Oh, big, big girl. Yeah. Yep. I think it was 800 and, or 686 feet. She's still running up there. She's oh, still, it's still working. Yeah. It's quite the processor. And um, so I ended up working my way through things. And um, in 1995, I was on the Pacific Alliance because I never jumped boats. But in that short period of time between 1991 uh, and 95, I had gone on three other different boats. And then I got called up by Jimmy McManus and said, hey, I'd rather have you working for the United States rather than the Japanese offshore. So I was offered a position as mate on the um, Golden Dawn. And th that's something special about that because when I was fishing the Queen Victoria, that's the boat that I had 13 years ownership in, and I was fishing Yellowfin Soul and doing some Pollock up there. I used to look in the foreground and I'd see this beautiful boat the Golden Dawn go running by, and I kind of wondered what kind of person or what kind of, what you had to do to run one of those kind of boats. Well, she's just, still pretty. It's she's just still a pretty, gorgeous yeah. boat. And so anyway, um, I was always envious of that. And the funny thing about it, in, in 1995, Jimmy McManus called me up and asked me if I wanted to be made on that boat because they were doing some uh, um, government charters, et cetera, and and I said, oh, yeah, well, that, that'd be fine. I'd like to do that. And he goes, okay. And I go, well, how long is this going to be? And he says, well, it'll be a 20-day charger. And I was already captain on the Pacific Alliance at the time for Supreme Alaska doing offshore Pollock in the Bering Sea. And I said, 20 days. And he says, what happens after that? And he goes, oh, that's it. And I go, well, don't give me a sucker and don't let me lick it. <laughs> <laughs> so... I ended up t telling him no, and he said, well, just a minute, let me call you back here in a couple hours. And he called me back a couple hours, he said, how would you like to have a permanent job? 
And I went, wow, okay. And so, uh, and I said, who's the captain? And he said, he told me who it was. And I went, oh, who I was see. Captain? The captain was Steve Bray. And I said, I see. Well, Steve, I'm um, doing the same things he used to do back in the joint venture days. He says, well, he says, Steve's a good guy. Had some uh, nice talks with him, and he says, he's a much finer person. And I went, okay. So I ended up going on up there, and um, I became the mate on the Golden Dawn. And we worked together for a year, and then some things went on with the company, and Steve, and um, I ended up becoming the captain. One year. Within one year. So in 1990, well, I got on the boat in 95, June 10th. That was a trip. They flew me up there out of Chignik. I fly into Chignik on June 10th, middle of the summer. My favorite place in Alaska. Huh? That's my favorite place in Alaska. Well, yeah. I guess so. <laughs> you can have it. <laughs> but that day when I was standing there looking down the dock, and the end of the dock disappeared in a whiteout storm, snowstorm, I'm going, wow, what did I get myself into? Anyway, the boat ended up showing up. I got on the boat and um, went through the ropes with, the, with uh, Noah on a charter and um, learned the ropes on the boat and everything like that and worked with Steve a little bit. And he got off in Kodiak and I took it around all the way to Ketchikan and well, within that next, fished within that year and by the next spring, just before uh, Cod, um, they turned the boat over to me. And I was, I've been on that boat for 23 and a half years. It's the finest boat I've ever been on. And going back and thinking about it, on the Queen Victoria, looking at, God, what kind of person you gotta be or, what do you got to do to get on one of these boats? It's, it's like God answered my uh, my uh, question there, and, and there, there I ended up. Well, just, just the other night, we're at a retirement party for you, because Gary's now retiring, uh, just just as of a couple days ago. But uh, you mentioned the same thing. You saw her out there running, and that you thought, boy, what kind of guy you got to be to run that boat like that? Now, here we are 23 years later. And you've been the captain of that boat for for this long, but your your crew has been trained up by you, and they're ready for the challenge. Oh yeah, I mean I got a real fine crew. Um, really had no crew turnover. My chief's been with me over 18 years. He looked at a different thing for like what 15 minutes? Didn't he like do Crowley or something for like 15 minutes? It was like okay, I can't do that. No, no, actually um, he wanted to try something different. Mark did and. Uh, he signed up for Crowley to work up in Prince William Sound on those 10,000 uh, 10, horsepower boats. And, and he used to show me pictures of that. And I was kind of, oh, really? Okay. So he ended up doing that. Um, but he also chewed all his fingernails off because it wasn't like being on our boat. He was always busy. They wouldn't so, let him do anything. No, they, they wouldn't let him do anything and do, do a requisition. Excuse me. Even if he had to um, get a filter, it maybe take anywhere from a week to a month to get the someone stuff. else had to approve you to change the filter that it was time to change it and oh yeah yeah he well mark's a mark's a really good engineer oh he's, I mean, he's he, a top-notch engineer he will fix Absolutely. it and he wants to he wants to get his hands dirty and get it done well it's been said uh, coast guards come down on our boat and uh, they've gone through their um, certification uh, for our sticker and they've said that we would set a standard that if we were the first boats like in Kodiak to ever be checked out, nobody could live up to that standard. And as far as them going down the engine room and everything like that, um, you could eat off the floor. I think most most vessels in your fleet are that way. 
I oh, mean, yeah. I mean, you, some of the best engineers are with Trident. I mean, just, they are. Um, they're, you walk into any one of those engine rooms on one of the Pollock boats, but Mark's, yours, is exceptional. I mean, exceptional. Well, I'd like to also say that every boat in the Trident fleet is exceptional. All the captains, all the engineers, all the crew members are all exceptional. And um, I think that's what Triton breeds is quite a fleet that um, these guys all work together and I was really proud to work with them. Top-notch people and uh, I'm going to miss them all. Yeah. So let's let's go back to when, so 43 years fishing now. No, 48. 48 years fishing. Do you remember the, not the biggest time, but the first time you were scared? The first time that you, <laughs> that you were really scared? <laughs> well... Actually, the first time that I did that was one of my first trips of um, fishing on the Queen Victoria. I fished down off the Oregon coast, and I had to deliver into Waco. Well, there's a little bitty entrance as you're going in through uh, the Columbia. That's one of the most dangerous uh, entranceways in the world, they say. There's lots of, um, it's a boneyard of ships. Well, I went on in there, and since the gold, since the, um, Queen Victoria was an old Gulf shrimper, had these big outriggers off the side, they looked like spider webs, and they were, they were like 60 feet long. You had to raise them on up and put them in a yoke in order to get in. What, they, what these big uh, arms did, they were good for um, shrimping, because um, you could pull your doors up on them, or they were also good for stabilizers, so you could put these um, stabilizers down in the water to keep the boat from rolling so much. Well, when I came into uh, the Owaco entranceway, I had to raise these um, outriggers, and my crew's out there raising these outriggers, and the swell wasn't very good, and these things started swinging back and forth, and they were not going to hit those yokes, and that was some butt pucker there. <laughs> but we, we what would happen? happen? I mean, what is this called inst causing instability of the boat? It's just oh no, no. What would happen if they missed a yoke? They could come in, and they would. Uh, since they were guy wire, they could rip off and go down and wipe out all your radars and just do a lot of damage on the boat. So uh, raising and lowering these things are always a real real butt factor. So, um, But we don't see that anymore these days, other down in the Gulf where they use those uh, double doors for shrimping. Mm -hmm. So that was the first time. Oh, yeah. What was the scaredest you've been? Uh... I was up there in Alaska bringing the Golden Dawn around uh, from Sandpoint after delivering a load of fish there. And we had some big winds and big seas, and I was uh, getting ready to go through Unimac Pass, and I was watching the tide and everything to make sure that I could get through there um, on a uh, ebb so that um, I wasn't going to go against for the seas and everything like that. And... I was getting ready to go around the corner, and I looked out to the uh, right side of my eye, and, and I'd seen this breaker coming, and it was just from one side of the boat as far as I could see, and it was curling at the top, and it just made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. That's not the only time that I had issues uh, or freaking out about what's going on. Anyway, I turned into it, and I ended up going in there, and two Coast Guard cutters, was 180-foot or 230-footers, there were, um, one was already in there jogging, and I went into four fathoms through the pick, and I said, that's it, boys. We're going to stay here tonight. We, we can catch a fish another day. Yeah. And um, that night, another Coast Guard cutter came in, and they were two of these big Coast Guard cutters were jogging around, and they're trying to be safe. And then Urilla Bay, uh, where it was safe. But 
that was hair raising to me from what I saw, but the, the worst time was when I was off the Hecate Banks, I was on the Neocani. We were fishing hake for the Russians, and we, I was on the outside of the banks there jogging because the weather was so fierce. And um, I looked out in front of me because I had my um, sodiums on, and I saw this thing coming from a long, long ways away, and it was just like white, a wall of white water, all the way from far as I could see to the left, all the ways I could see to the right. And I watched that thing coming, and the golden and the um, Neocon is a 110-foot boat, and they said, "Well, it's submarine-proof. It's a uh, you can't hurt that thing." And I said, "Okay, that's good." And that thing kept coming, that big whatever it was, a big wall of water, and it kept getting closer and closer. And I kept looking up. I don't know; it must have been 60 feet or something. I ended up running up into the back of the station and curling down. And I told the guys down below, I said, hey, we're going to get hit bad. It hit the boat and buried the boat. It squirted water through the upper windows on the back side of the boat. Oh. And uh, we were getting a mayday from another boat in our fleet that was there because it got rolled on its side from the same wave. That one there was hairy. I'll never forget that. But that was on the heck of the banks, and there was no place to go. But the boat was okay? The boat was okay. And you, did you respond to the May Day? I mean, what happened with the boat? Oh, yeah. We all, we, I mean, the best thing we could do was respond to it, and we called them and everything. They got back and said, hey, we ride it ourselves. You know, washer and dryer, they, they removed themselves from the port side. They're embedded in the starboard side of the, the galley. And, uh, you know, but they said, we can we can get them back and secure them. They're no good, and we can carry on. So we were watching. That have, was you, have you had a lot of May Day calls up there? Oh, well, yeah, there's been in the, in the Bering Sea. Just you in general. I mean, being on the receiving end of that mayday call or responding to one. A lot of times I've been a long ways away from them. But anytime you hear a mayday, that's the first thing you do is you pull your gear and you go. You you just no matter where you're at. No matter where you are, um, if you're hopefully within the vicinity and you listen to uh, it used to be forty one twenty five and um, emergency channel and you would respond to it no matter what you're doing. There are people. Deciding to jump overboard, for whatever reason, we go and uh, respond to that. There's people um, during the cod fishing season that would fall overboard. We would respond to that. Um, Bering Sea is not a, a a very friendly place, especially in the wintertime. Very dangerous, and it used to be more dangerous back in the early days when I started in 1985. We had much, much more ice. Well, and no. No PFDs, no hard hats, no uh, signaling devices, right? I mean, oh, things yeah. have changed a lot in the safety side, too. Well, thanks to the Coast Guard and thanks to a lot of the, the regulations these days, it's improved dramatically. The um, I mean, back when you started, was there, was there drills? Were you doing drills no, before you left? No, no. We had our life rafts. We had our um, survival suits. We had EPIRBs. But, and we really never, ever just talk too much about what we're going to do other than the fact that if we had a problem that's what you, you know, did yeah. this is what we're going to get but now you can't even you got to be able to get in that life suit fast i mean you're actually tested on it to make Ab sure well, you absolutely every 30 days not every 31 every 30 days we're required by the cfrs to go through um safety training on a boat and it's and you have to document it and we all sit down and have a verbal and that usually lasts for hour hour and a half and this includes 100% um, coverage by an observer. They're supposed to be there at all times because they're, they need to be held accountable. And uh, then we go outside and we do all our drills. 
Man overboard, abandoned ship, fire, and flooding. It's something you, you do once a month, every 30 days, not every 31. And um, that's what keeps us safe, and thank goodness for Trident. Um, they require us to do that, and I'm glad we do do that. And uh, I think that's created a safer environment for all our vessels. And you can, you can look in um, the records, even the Coast Guard say, hey, things have gotten better. And um, I'm proud to say that uh, there are less casualties. Fleet-wide, there's less Fleet-wide, yeah. not only in the Trident Fleet, Westford, Unice, Alaska. It's just it's Definitely. just a great thing to see because you don't want your fellow companions to perish at sea. It's one of the most frightening, worrisome, horrible things to feel for the other sailor friends. Yeah. So uh, this many years on the boat, I want to bring it back a little bit and just a sense that there's five or six of you on there. How are the dinners? Who's cooking? It's, it feels like home whenever I visit one of the boats. It always feels like someone's cooking a nice big five-course meal or not five-course, but home-cooked meal. Oh, yeah. Well, we have a, a tiered group on our boat. We got Our boat is licensed since it's over tonnage. Anything over 200 ton, um, you have to have a license to operate. And um, in doing so, you have a licensed master, you have a mate, you have a licensed chief, and then you have two ABs or two deckhands that you can have that don't necessarily need to be licensed, but the the master, the chief, and the mate have to be. And um, we're the ones that coordinate all the drills, etc. And to have someone to cook on the boat, yeah, you need to eat good to keep your strength up. And we have a we have one meal in the morning, which is mandatory as far as I'm concerned, and a uh, dinner at night. They can do whatever they want in the middle of the day. Or some boats they have three meals throughout the day. And um, we have great, great cooks. You know, the two ABs, they help out a lot. They, they share responsibilities. If one cooks, the other cleans. And, you know, we all participate. Sometimes the chief cooks want something a little bit different. Sometimes I'll go in there and throw a little bit of sushi in there and we'll make some fun. And um, we'll, especially when we're tendering, we all, we all try to pitch in. When the guys are working hard and uh, somebody's not doing something then they'll end up cooking so we all work as a team as a group family yeah as a family mm -hmm. so what's your funnest time up there my funnest time is at the end of the trip we've gone out there and we pulled a two-hour trip and we just smoked a fish I got I get to look at my guys and they're all, they're all kind of bobbing their heads and they're all smiling and they're going yeah this is what it's all about that's the most funnest time. Do you have any advice for young guys trying to get in now? My advice for young guys getting in there now, know exactly what you're getting yourself into because it's a dangerous occupation. Um, don't go on the boat thinking that uh, you're going to conquer the world. Listen to your crewmates. Listen to your leads. And um, follow the, their example. Because any wrong mover that you make could be your last move. Yeah. What about guys that are, we have a lot of listeners in like UK, uh, Czech Republic, um, Ireland. Hmm. And these guys are listening and they're, they're entertained by the podcast, but yet thinking about maybe this is something I want to do. Any advice to those young guys that are just in college still listening right now? Well, like I said, it's not for everybody. And, um, some countries like Ireland, Killybags, they're born and raised to go fishing. This is this is just a natural thing for them to do. That's 
as they get older, they get out of high school or get out of school, uh, their next move is to go into the fishing industry. In the United States, there's lots of different opportunities to do things and to get, you know, I mean, you can grow up in a community that is a fishing community, and of course, that's the next thing you think you're going to do, especially if you're your father has other boats. Uh, you might be next in line to get on a boat, learn the ropes, become the captain of that boat, and maybe you know carry on and get your own boat at some time. And uh, but it's not for everybody. And that's all I can say about that. Okay. Uh, before we go, as always, we're going to encourage people to eat wild Alaska seafood. Absolutely. Wild Alaska pollock. Oh, no doubt about uh, that. You, and you've experienced both those, right? Farmed fish and wild fish yes uh, i've experienced both of them and there's nothing like a fresh pollock or a fresh codfish um the flavor of them is awesome trident does an ex exceptional job on keeping the quality fresh um, we have time limits on when we can go out when we can set our gear how long we can fish and when we need to be back at the plant that's all regulated to bring the, the most freshest and the best pollock or cod to the table and fish and game has a big part of that too, right? They're regulating and making sure that uh, the correct amount is caught, not too much, uh, allowing for escapement or reproduction and monitoring the fishing industry as a whole. And not just in pollock, we're talking about the entire species, salmon and Oh, absolutely. And a sustainable resource in Alaska is phenomenal. That's why um, Alaska has such abounding um, resources, not like uh, Russia or uh, China. And those places there, I mean, their resources are very, very poor. But in Alaska, we have rebounding resources that we're able to go and continue to fish and provide um, the consumer the best quality product and also that it's sustainable. That's the best thing about it. When did you get married, Gary? I got married in 1978 to my wonderful wife, Lori. And um, how has she taken this whole fishing gig? for 40 plus years well at first it was really tough on her because I was gone days at a time and that's she didn't figure that that's exactly what her life was going to be um, me being gone all the time trying to raise a son then two sons I actually quit fishing at one point there and said I'll come home and I'll look for something that I can be at home and just in doing so it, she told me that since I did come home she knew that I did care about the family and that I could go ahead and uh, continue my future in fishing if I wished to do so. And um, I did. I ended up turning out to be a captain in 1981 and working my way through an ownership of a boat and then also uh, later on selling that vessel and then operating as a hired captain and working for Triton Seafood. And, and I'm really proud to say that I actually made it to the fishing industry in the Bering Sea for 33 years and 23 and a half years for Trident Seafoods and make it to the end of a professional career and retire, I'm pretty happy to be able to A lot of guys don't. No, a lot of guys don't. A lot of my friends, uh, they died at sea, they died at the wheel. Um, some perished by going overboard. Some perished uh, because of ice situations like the destination. I've had some good friends on there. All six crew members and the captain, they perish at sea. Um, the Bering Sea is no no place to play around, and it's a dangerous place to be, and you need to watch everything you do. No matter what boat you're on, no matter what you're doing, no matter how you're fishing or what species, it's... Absolutely. Well, it's up to the captain 
to make sure he takes care of his crew 100%, no matter what. You can catch a fish another day, but you injure your crew member, he may not be able to come back again. Right. That's That stays for life. But you can always catch a fish another day. And as the captain, that's your responsibility. Absolutely, 100%. 100%. I, no one's going to tell you you have to fish because as the captain you say no no I was told at times that if I would go out I would be moved up in uh, rotation and stuff and this guy said nope it's not weather inducive I will yeah. not go because um, you can't replace your crew member I mean I love my guys I'm there to help take care of them they're there to help work on the boat they're there to work I'm not going to put them through some kind of situation to where they're going to get put themselves in jeopardy. We can catch a fish another day, but we cannot replace another crew member. That's it. That's right. That's right. All right, guys. Uh, Gary, thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's been another installment of Galley Stories. Look us up on Facebook. Uh, if you uh, really want to support the podcast at all, find us on uh, iTunes, Spotify, wh whatever your favorite platform is to listen. Give us that five-star rating if you would, or at least leave a comment. Uh, email us at marketgalleystories.net and we will see you next time. you have anything to add? Nope. Hi, guys. Anything new. Have a good day and be safe. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.